Well, amen. Well, it has been exciting singing about what we've been studying about. Jesus wearing the victor's crown, the belief in resurrection, the belief that the life he's called us to comes from living out this Christmas poem. As we've been memorizing that, we've been looking in this series about how the entire book is really formatted around this poem. Each section of Philippians highlights some portion of this poem. God becoming man, today being the appearance of man, he emptied himself or kenosis himself by thinking lowly about the needs of others. So the section of Philippians we're in today complements right here, this section of the poem. And if Paul was to summarize this section, it basically says, Christians, think lowly. Think lowly. How do I lower myself to serve other people's needs from Paul? And the reason we want to think lowly and put the needs of other people ahead of our own is because Jesus came in the appearance of man and constantly had the lowly mindset. And Paul's going to tell us that lowliness is next to godliness. Lowliness is next to godliness. Here's how he's going to say it. Philippians 2.7, I want you to have lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Well, he tells us, let each person esteem other people better than himself. There's this big, long word in Greek I won't even try and pronounce, but it basically means, the lowliness means I humble myself to think of other people's needs because God humbled himself to think of my needs. That's the motivation for how we live the life that God has called us to. That doesn't mean you don't have your own needs. Let us think of other people's needs, right? But more highly than our own. Think of your own needs, but put other people's needs on par with your needs, is what he's talking about. So today we're going to look at two aspects of this lowliness mindset. Two things that Paul wants us to have in order to live out a life of putting our employees and putting our bosses and putting our companies and putting our kids and putting our spouses' needs ahead of our own. That we can love others the same way Jesus loved us here in that poem. So what's the first aspect? The lowly life fearlessly stands. It fearlessly stands up for what's right. It fearlessly chooses to do what will serve other people. And the, the lowly mindset means I'm willing to suffer for other people's needs. Whenever you put somebody else's needs ahead of your own, I promise you, you're suffering, right? You wouldn't have done it that way. You wouldn't have preferred that. That's crazy. But you're saying, I'm willing to suffer by being patient, by being kind, by having the mindset that your needs are more important than mine right now. And I'm going to stand up for that mindset here. Here's how Paul says it. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The gospel of Christ. Are you living and conducting yourselves inconsistent with that? So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you're standing fast, you're standing up for this kind of lifestyle, this new type of living. With one mind, it's a mindset, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's really interesting this word he uses for worthy. It's actually got political implications in their day, and it was to stand up for the rights of a citizen. You're a Roman citizen. You need to act like a citizen. And if you remember, to live in Philippi was to live as if you lived in Rome. And most people would never, ever, ever be a Roman citizen. They couldn't afford to be a Roman citizen. In fact, if you had one of these, you'd got it made. This was an actual Roman citizenship. And with that came certain rights and certain privileges in your life. God says, Jesus has given you the ultimate citizenship in heaven. 
And I want you to stand for that, live for that. And because his citizenship was about prioritizing others, I want your life to be conducting yourself with the rights of your citizenship in heaven. He expounds on that. He says, with one mind, all of you, I want you to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That not in any way, this is so striking to me, I don't want you in any way to be terrified by your adversaries. The people stoning us, the people killing us, the people throwing us in prison. I don't want you in any way to be fearful of your adversaries, which to them is proof of perdition, which is like a word of damnable. To be fearful to a Roman is damnable. Ah, courage and honor. I want you to be fearless in your culture because it speaks to those watching you. But to you of salvation, for you to die like Christ died, it's gain. You're going to end up in heaven. May that mindset per, uh, percolate your mind in everything you do. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now this is striking. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here in me, to die is gain, to live as Christ. Paul says two things. One, I want you to live fearlessly, standing up for the rights of others, suffering with other people, because the Romans are going to see that and be drawn to Christ. And number two, you worship through suffering. What? Look at Jesus. On the cross, he was worshiping God by putting the needs of others, your my need for forgiveness, above his own. He worshiped God. Hebrews tell us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In the same way Jesus worshiped through suffering, you can worship through suffering. It's not meaningless. You're worshiping God when you suffer for him when you stand up for other people. I kind of this awkward moment happened a few weeks ago. I was on an airplane sitting next to Quinn. Beth had been <laughs> got seats far back. So there's Quinn and I are here and Beth's in the back. And uh, we sat in the seat and all of a sudden a guy walks down the center aisle and he's about 50-something. He's got a four-year-old and he looks at the seat and says, I think someone's in the wrong seat. Oh, sorry. We, we're in, we have AB, which is right there, and we're in DE. The stewardess says, well, listen, it's literally the exact same seats. It's window seat, middle seat. Sir, would you be willing to just sit there so he and his son don't have to move? No, I paid for that seat. So he gets Quinn up, and we're crawling over people and crawling over the next person. He gets away, sit down in our identical seats. We sit back down and not thinking much of it. But I'm a little irritated. <laughs> next thing I know, a police officer comes on the airplane, walks down, somebody's in trouble, stops at our row, turns to this guy and says, you need to come with us. He's like, what? He says, you need to come with me. Well, this is my son. I can't leave my son here. Leave your son. I'll take care of him. Could you at least tell me what I'm being accused of? I won't ask you again. Walk away. In that moment, I thought, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And I, and I kind of, I was trying to think about it from all perspectives. Is this guy a, a child abductor? If so, I felt for the police officer, you're walking in, you're either about to talk to a poor dad and accuse him of something that's not true, or you're about to stop a child abduction. I thought about the child who's having his dad taken away from him with, with no telling what he's accused of and no pulling him away. Then we'll add to the racial tension. There's lots of people around us, black, white, all thing. The police officer happens to be white. The 50-year-old happens to be black. And his son happens to be white, who's four. Took him off the plane took all the luggage off the plane, and you just kind of hear these whispers. I wonder what's going on. Because of the mixed racial group, you could feel the tension. I thought, you know what? I don't know what's going on here, but 
there wasn't a lot of presumed innocence here. Next thing I know, the kid comes back on the plane. His father comes back on the plane, walking the walk of shame, as you can just imagine. Now I'm identifying with him. Oh, my goodness, if I had had myself taken away from my, my son, and, and my son would be scared to death at four, and now I wouldn't even told why I was being taken off, and now he's feeling embarrassed. He's on the phone talking to his wife about what they're going to do. And the whole time during the, the plane ride, I feel like God is prompting me to do something. I didn't want to say something when it was happening because, you know, I didn't want to be late for the plane. We land the plane, and I turned to him, and this guy who had irritated me before, right, because he, he, he got his seat. I said, listen, I don't know exactly what happened or what's going on, but I want you to know that uh, I didn't see a lot of presumed innocence, and I'd be delighted to be at least a witness to what encountered, if that'd be helpful. His whole demeanor changed. And the people around us, the demeanor changed. Man, I'm so glad. I said, I'll just show what happened. But again, I don't think there's a lot of presumed innocence. And he said, man, thank you so much. Took my name down, my phone number down. And we ended up running into him at the bathroom. He just couldn't be more grateful. At that moment, I tried to think through all the perspective. Not presume anyone is wrong, but just how can I identify with all the different pieces? And how can I step up and stand for the needs of others, even if it meant people looking at me a different way? What does it look like for you in your life, in your marriage, in your community to do that? To stand up fearlessly for the needs of others. The second thing Paul's going to mention, a different aspect of the, this lowly life mindset, is constantly focusing on the needs of other people. Here's how he's going to say it. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Let this be your mindset. Loving, comforting. Have the same love for one another. Be of one record. You're going to find later in the book there's a bunch of fights going on in the church. Be of one mind. Let nothing be done. <laughs> Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But again, in lowliness of mind, what does that mean? Esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out for your own interests. Nothing wrong with looking out for your own needs. But also the interests of others. Don't just live for self, selfish ambition. Now, if you were in the Greek culture, you'd probably immediately think of Narcissus. It's where we get the word narcissism. The god Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection. Man, am I great. Man, am I beautiful. Everything he did was motivated by self. The gods of the Greeks were always motivated by self. He said, that's not what our god is like. He's always motivated by serving others. And he extrapolates on this in a pretty amazing way. Jesus, who was the very essence or form of God, humbled himself. And the way the Greek is constructed here, you could read it two ways. One way would be, despite the fact he was God, he did the opposite of what gods do, and he humbled himself. But I think the better construction of the Greek is to say, because he was a different type of God, because he was the real God, and that God is always focused on other people, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father defers to the Son, the Son defers to the Holy Spirit. It's always an other-centered being. He, of course, humbled himself. It's the essence of who our God is like. In fact, the word he uses here is interesting. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very essence of God, did not consider it robbery. And the word robbery is to grasp. He didn't in every situation try to grasp at his privileges or grasp at his rights or, you don't dare you talk to me like that. Instead of grasping for all his rights as God, he took the lowly mind and didn't grasp for his reputation or privileges. 
Now, this word grasp is very interesting because it's the exact same word used in contrast to Adam and Eve. For Adam and Eve were made in God's image, not God, but in his image. And Satan said to them, hey, here's an opportunity to be like God if you eat of the tree. And they took, and the word is grasped, at the chance to be God. Grasp of the chance to be in charge. Grasp of the chance to tell other people what to do. And they took it and ate it, she and her husband. See, the God of the Bible is unlike any God that the Greeks had heard of before. He made himself, it's a Greek word, kenosis. It's the meaning of Christmas. It means to empty yourself of your privileges, empty yourself of your rights, to empty yourself in order to serve other people. Jesus emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. How can I serve in this situation? How can I humble myself here? And therefore, God exalts those who do that. And he's challenging the Philippians and challenging us to have that mindset in our marriages, in our life, and in our daily decisions. What does it mean for you and I to let this mind, it literally means to mold your mind. That phrase, to let your mind in those days, was like taking an oil lamp and you would press it into the pattern. And that pattern would set the material and it would come out as a mold of the oil lamp. And that way they were all the same. He's saying to you and I, if you will press yourself into Christ, if you'll press yourself into what he did, you will become like-minded. You'll have the same mind. You'll have loneliness of mind. You'll have this kenosis mindset. You'll think of the needs of others in this argument. How well are you molding your mind? And what does it look like when we mold our mind? Well, there's three things that happen when you mold your mind. Number one, you see every opportunity as a chance to apply your faith. Therefore, my brethren, just as you always obey, not just when I'm around, but also when I'm present, work out, apply, put into motion, is what work out means, your own salvation. Put this grace, put this message, put this gift into operation with fear and trembling. For it is God who does the work. He's the one that molds you. But don't forget to press in and apply. What does it look like in this situation to have lowliness mindset? For God is trying to will in your life and to do some good things to make you according to his good pleasure. Molding your mind means applying your faith in a situation. Number two, it means whatever situation I'm in, even if I'm suffering, this is a chance to shine gratitude. Paul says, do all things. All things? All things. Without grumbling and complaining. I can't even do one thing without grumbling and complaining. You want me to do all things? Why? Because every chance you have is to mold your mind to say, I want to be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that I can shine like a light in the world because of the way I choose gratitude and choose to be grateful for what God's doing in my life. Holding fast the word of life so I can rejoice in the day of Christ and may not have run in vain. Then he says, this is a chance to worship through suffering. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of the faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. When I see you guys living and being molded like Christ, it reminds me my suffering was worth it. And when you suffer for Christ, the people who see and come to Christ, you will know that your suffering was worth it. Mold your mind into the needs of others and a kenosis. Now we're going to dig it down into this word kenosis, but to do that, remember Paul was writing these words from prison. Let's dig down into the meaning of kenosis 
from prison as well. Let's watch. Now the first aspect of kenosis is the first adaptation. It's that I adapt what I do. Now think about God. God is totally free. I mean, he's outside of time and space. He's the most joyous being in the universe. And yet he chooses to leave that place with no limitations to come to this prison we call earth with disease and misunderstandings and betrayal. And he did that for you and I. He adapted what he did. And Paul picks up on this for the Philippians. He says, guys, let this mindset be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but rather he made himself of no reputation. No reputation. That's Christmas. God who, who lived in heaven came to this outhouse of earth and he adapted himself by being born as a child in a manger. Now, a manger, many of us think of as that big wooden thing with hay in it, but actually a manger was made usually out of stone. And out of stone, it was a place that animals would drink. And he allowed himself to be born in a stinky stable, which was often a cave, a place where animals were kept during a storm. And God comes to this place. He comes to that prison cell. He looks and sees us inside. We're in bondage. We're in need in this prison of earth. And God leaves all of his luxury and steps into the cell for us. He, he adapted to us. He came into our bondage for us. He put our needs ahead of his own. I was reading a story about Mary Daniels. She lives in Jacksonville, Florida. It's amazing is that her husband had dementia. And the last couple of years have been hard, but she would come into his room with him. When she came into that room, she would pray with him, talk with him, help calm him when he lost track of what's what of the last, last few years. But since COVID, 114 days, she couldn't see her own husband. And all of a sudden, this job offer came open. It was a job offer to be a dishwasher at the nursing home. Well, she had an incredible career, but she gave up her career so that she could become a dishwasher to be with her husband. See, that's what God did for us. He left the, the, the prominence of heaven to come to the prison cell of earth to become a servant, a, a dishwasher, to be near us, to provide for our needs. And that's the first aspect of, of kenosis. It's adapting what I do. But the second aspect is to do it without losing who I am. Every prison has a chapel. Why is that? A chapel is like a sacred space where people can come and find forgiveness, find hope, and find joy. In one sense, God was up on the podium in heaven. He looked down and he saw us in need of sacred space. And he came near. In Christmas, he stepped down into our world. He came down into that manger to be near us. What's amazing is as he did it, it didn't lose any bit of who he was. See, that's our Christmas adaptation number two. I adapt what I do without losing who I am. 
See, Paul goes on. He says, Jesus did not consider robbery to take the form of no reputation. And that phrase, to, to take the form, is to empty yourself, to kenosis yourself. It's almost like saying that God took 100% of who he is as God and poured it out into 100% of a human being. He did that out of humility. He wanted to become what we needed, so he emptied himself. Now, he gave up some things temporarily, right? No longer was he omnipresent. He was in the form of that child. But he came and dwelt among us without losing who he was. He was in the likeness of God. Doesn't mean he looked like God, but wasn't really God. He was fully God, but he poured himself in to a human being without losing not one little bit of who he is and who he was. Why is that so powerful? Why does that even matter? Because if he's fully God, right, he can represent God's justice. But if he's fully man, he represents our need and our humanity. He can truly substitute for us, which is what he did. Now, there's a lot of unhealthy relationships, right? You've often heard of codependent relationships. I've got to adapt. I've got to become whatever you need. But I'm not doing that out of strength. I'm doing that out of weakness. I am actually losing who I am. You've had brothers or sisters or people who get married and you're like, wow, I don't even recognize them anymore. They've lost themselves in that relationship. That's not what God did. He didn't lose himself. He served. He humbled. He came near us because he's God and because out of strength, not weakness, he chose to adapt without losing one little bit of his divinity. Others of us have seen domineering relationships where one person demands that we act a certain way or demands that we adapt. It's not what we're talking about here either. God doesn't demand. He chose to serve. He chose to forgive. He chose to come near in that little baby because of who he is. That's what God does. God looks, God sees, and God serves. God is always about adapting to other people without losing who he is. I think what's amazing to me is that God came out and sat among us. I mean, the word Emmanuel means God with us. He didn't stay at a distance up on the podium, up on the platform. Instead, he came and dwelt among us. And what motivated him to adapt, what motivated him not to lose who he was, is that he did it out of a place of strength. He adapts from a place of strength. I want to serve you. I choose to serve you, not weakness. Not about you, but there's a lot of reasons why I don't adapt. There's a lot of reasons why when I try and adapt, I do lose who I am. I lose my temper sometimes. I lose my patience. I'm often amazed how selfish I can be. I remember we had a Christmas picture many, many years ago. It was the extended family, right? Everybody got together, everybody and the kids and grandkids. And that's fine. I just don't really like Christmas pictures. They're usually a hassle, but I'm like, I'll do it. And I don't really care what I wear typically. So I'm like, ah, oh, Mom, what do you want me to wear? So we put on outfits, and then all of a sudden I heard that one of our relatives, who shall remain nameless, had requested that we all wear jeans and a T-shirt. A second ago, I didn't care. But when I found out who wanted me to wear jeans and a t-shirt, I could feel myself stiffen up. 
No, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. Why would we do that? For Christmas? I suddenly had all kinds of strong opinions about Christmas photos. I suddenly was not going to adapt. And it really wasn't because I cared that much. It's just because I didn't want so-and-so telling me what to do. Right? God was willing to do so much for us. And it's amazing what little we're willing to do to adapt to others. We get angry. We get irritated. We get, no one's going to control me. Right? We, We do that. Christmas is a reminder that if if God really adapted to us in such an unbelievable way, he goes from being a multidimensional, beyond time and space being to a little child. He doesn't lose one bit of who he is when he does it. Couldn't you and I, out of a place of genuine strength, choose to serve other people, even people who irritate us, even people who annoy us or just drive us crazy in our family, Say, God, I'm going to adapt to them without losing who I am. Even though they may take it for granted, even though they may, they may be a very irritable, very controlling, that, that may be true. But I'm, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for you. See, some of us are willing to go a little bit to adapt, right? I'll go to the first row. But sometimes the people who annoy us the most require us to go two, three, four, go all the way back to adapt for them. But God did that for us. That's what kenosis is about. It's emptying ourselves. It's pouring ourselves into others because God poured himself into us. I adapt what I do without losing who I am. But then there's a third aspect of Christmas adaptation. Why do we do it? (laughs) We do it because of what you mean to me. Imagine you're a prison guard all day long. You're checking in prisoners. What would it take for you to trade places? You give up your freedom and you take on their incarceration. Like, I don't think there's anything that would make me change places. Nothing. In fact, the closer I was to the situation, the less and less likely it would be that I would ever make that exchange. And yet Paul turns to the Philippians and says, that's exactly what God did. God was willing to spend 33 years in this prison called earth, even die brutally by the Romans. And it was for one simple reason. Remember we talked about kenosis? The third Christmas adaptation is this. I adapt what I do without losing who I am because of what you mean to me, God says. I was willing to do it because of what you mean to me. You were so valuable to me that I was willing to die. And not just die in way, but to die on a cross. It says he became obedient to death. Death on a cross. You see, if I had come in history, I would have come maybe during a time when lethal injection was in vogue. Not Roman crucifixion. Brutal pounding of, of giant nails into your hands and into your feet. But God wanted you and I to know just how much we mean to him that he was willing to die for us, that he was willing to be persecuted for us, that he was willing to endure so much for you and I and what we did. Isn't that what happens, though? In fact, God rewards us when we adapt. 
It says that he positioned him at the right hand of God. When he saw him dying for us, he rewarded him with resurrection. To communicate to Jesus, we want to communicate to you and I. We matter. Isn't it true that when you adapt to somebody, you communicate to them how important they are? When you choose to put their needs or preferences ahead of your own, they feel valuable. They feel treasure. They feel like they matter. Right? Your spouse has got like three things they like to do, and you've got three things you like to do. And you know when they choose to listen when they'd rather not be listening. When they choose to talk a little bit longer than they'd like to check out and go watch TV. When they choose to go to the movie you like. Not just the movie they like. And you feel valued. You feel treasured. You feel important. The same thing is true not just when you do it to someone. Um, when they do it to you. Maybe it's with your kids. We've all got a son or daughter that maybe has a personality similar to ours. But what about that son or daughter that's different from us? Maybe you're a numbers person and your son or daughter are more into, uh, maybe they're an artist. And you love them, right? You just don't necessarily get them. But they can feel it when you take the time to understand them, to hear their story, to say, hey, I'm not good at this, but tell me what you love about music. Tell me what you love about that particular thing, right? And you're communicating to them that they matter to you and they matter to God. Adapting always costs something, but always communicates something too. Maybe it's financially. You adapt your giving. You adapt your spending habits. Instead of spending money A, I'm going to spend it on B. Because something's important. Maybe it's God. I want to thank God for his work at Horizon in my life. God, I'm going to not spend on A because I want you to know how much you mean to me. Maybe it's a nonprofit. Maybe it's somebody who you're serving. And you're changing or adapting your spending habits to communicate love to somebody else. Maybe it's vacation. You give a week of vacation and you decide, I'm going to go spend a week in Belize to give away free medical care, to care for people who would otherwise never have this kind of thing. You adapt your calendar. You adapt your spending for vacation to communicate to someone you don't even know how much they mean to you and to God. Did you know Jesus said that whenever and whatever you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me? He says, when you visited me in prison, what's Jesus doing in prison? He said, well, if you visit anyone in prison, you're actually loving on me. See how powerful that is? That's kenosis. It's the idea that I adapt to others because God adapted to me. Kenosis. I adapt what I do without losing who I am because of what you mean to me. So how do you have that Christmas mindset? Well, think of Tim Robbins from Shawshank Redemption. In fact, we're shooting today at the very prison they shot the movie. Think about how he was able to find joy in his circumstances when he knew there was that way of escape. Remember the big poster? There was like this way, and like that last couple days, he knew he was about to escape, and it totally changed his mindset. He still came and sat in a cell, but he knew he would soon be free. That's the idea Paul's getting at here. When you realize that whatever happens in this life, you can be free 
ultimately God is with you in the midst of this, but also you're going to one day get out of here. You have the hope of heaven and the full reward of it. In fact, there's a verse he goes on to say. He says, there's a secret to being content. And then there's a verse you may have heard, seen it on a, a jersey maybe. Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What if you really believed you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you? No matter what you face, no matter what you're up against, you've got a source of strength that can overcome anything. But see, that source of strength isn't just so you can run a good business or you know, score some touchdowns. That's fine. But what he's really saying is God gives you the strength to do all things, meaning learning to being content in abundance <laughs> and in need. That's the mindset that changes everything. And when you get that, God says, then I want you to be as, as generous to others as I've been to you. I want you to realize that I can give you the strength to serve others, forgive others, love others, give generously to others, compassion, money, service, because you know that I've done the same for you. You can live generously. You can live selflessly because you have something that cannot be contained and cannot be torn down by circumstances. Imagine Paul sitting in that that prison in Philippi. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life. He's sitting in shackles. What they would do in those days is they would take your legs and spread them apart until they almost dislocated and then lock them down into shackles on both sides. You're bleeding. You're bloody. You've been beaten. And all of a sudden, you start to think about Jesus. What? Yeah, Paul starts to think about Jesus in the middle of those circumstances. How generous God had been suffering for him, living for him, dying for him. And as he was suffering in that moment, remembering how Jesus suffered for him, something came out of him that surprised everyone. Now imagine Paul and Silas sitting here in their shackles, bleeding against the back wall. And now imagine you're a, you're a prisoner nearby. You're listening in. See, there's something about being in a prison. You love it when the newbies come in, right? You love it their first night because who knows, are they going to blubber like a baby? Are they going to cry? Are they going to swear? Or are they going to cry out to their gods? So all the prisoners that night are listening in. Paul and Silas are in prison. <laughs> I heard they're religious. Can't wait to hear what comes out of them. They all lean in on the wall. They lean up against the bars. And they hear something. At first, it's almost a whimper. Is he crying? No. It's music. I think he's singing. Paul's having a Christ Mass, Christmas, a Mass, a worship service about Christ. He, in this jail cell, is in Philippi, is singing about how he adores him. And there's a second voice. It's like a two-part harmony. They're adoring Christ in their circumstances. It's like Christmas has not only come into this jail cell, 
It's now filling the entire prison. Let's pray together. Father, we just join in that chorus of adoring you, celebrating Christmas all year round because we sing as citizens of heaven. You told those in Philippi that they were citizens of heaven. Because of that, they could rejoice and worship through suffering, through giving, and through adapting to those around us, Father. Make us more like you by meditating on what you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Well, Jesus' name, well, as you head out today, two things. If you're interested, I'm doing a parenting class tonight. We'd love to chat with you and your families about how to do better on the parenting thing. But if you just have that spirit of Christmas that you want to go and give to others, we set up our giving tree right out by the front door. There are ways in which we partner with inter-parish ministries, um, Belize, back-to-back, Happy Church. All of the ministries we're doing year-round get coordinated with our giving tree for the next four months or next four weeks together. So feel free to take that as a tool to be generous to those around you. Thanks for being here today.